Hello and welcome to A Reason for Hope. We are with you live for the next hour to receive and answer your questions on God's Word, the Bible. That's right, your questions guide our show along as they come in through our various platforms. If you're listening to us on Reach Radio, welcome, but you are listening to a, a pre-recorded um, version, yesterday's show or the last show that we did pre-recorded. But other than that, on our other platforms, we are live as can be. So please send us your questions in. We'd love to get to those and find the answers in the Word. That's what we're here to do. My name's Dave Robson. I will be your host and fielding those questions as they come on in live. Also with me today is Pastor Sean Richards and Pastor Peter Martin, or Pastor Peter Martin, as you might say. <laughs> How are you guys doing today? No, Nothing will make you more self-conscious than to hear someone else do an impression of your accent. <laughs> I know. It's hard, Pastor Peter Martin. <laughs> no, Americans don't have accents. You go. <laughs> when I took my kids to England, I said, "You wait. When you go to England, you're going to be the one with the accent." And people were saying, "You got to." I like your accent. You got an American accent, and they'll be like, "What are you talking about?" But yeah, how you doing, Peter? You doing good? Doing good. Doing good. It's good to see you. Doing good, Sean. Yeah. The uh, angry Sonoran toad under my bed is happy, so I am happy. You have an angry Sonoran toad under your bed. You don't. <laughs> I don't. Mine is happy all the day. That must know. be an American thing. <laughs> hey, that was a good comeback, yeah. <laughs> right? That was a pretty good comeback, yeah. <laughs> callback. Well, call a callback or whatever it was. Well, enough of this idle banter. Uh, allow me to let you know how you can join us on our show. Of course, if you're already hearing us and seeing us and you've found a way, like I mentioned, uh, Reason for Hope is a live broadcast. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 to 6 Mountain Standard Time or whatever time it is, or in whatever part of the world. Of course, we're going out through the internet, so anywhere in the world. We know we have viewers... Uh, in Africa and England and all over the place, and you are very welcome indeed. Um, a Reason for Hope is an outreach of Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, so keep that in mind as you're trying to find us. You can go to our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. If you follow the Watch Live tab right there, that will take you to our live page where you'll see a countdown to our next show. If we're not currently live, you'll see a schedule of upcoming um, Reason for Hope shows and also our services here at Calvary Christian Fellowship. And if we are live, you will see us live, and there'll be a chat function. So you can go directly to that, ccftucson.online.church, or again, just follow that link from our calvarychristianfellowship.com website. That's the easiest way to get to it. Also on Facebook, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, or facebook.com slash ccftucson. You'll find us live there as well. And of course, there's a chat function, chat box, where you can follow along and send in your questions, and I will be fielding those as they come on in. We have an app, if you look for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, in your app store, whether that's uh, on your mobile device or even on Roku and Apple TV, you can watch us there as well. And on YouTube, our channel is called A Reason for Hope. So if you're trying to find us on YouTube, you want to look for A Reason for Hope, or the official handle is at A Reason for Hope 546. But again, if you just search A Reason for Hope, it will come up. You'll find us there. You can follow our senior pastor here, Scott Richards. He's not with us today, but he is Monday, Wednesday, uh, Friday. He is the founder of this show. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter at ScottR4H. That's ScottR4H. He posts highlights from the show and also commentary on uh, prophetic things, world events, and things like that, things that are going on in the world. So very interesting. If you want to follow along with Pastor Scott, you can do so there at Twitter. And last but not least, our email address is questionsforhope at gmail.com. That's questionsforhope at gmail. You can send us questions when we're off air, and we try to get to those uh, first come, first serve. So you can uh, reach out or send us encouraging things or anything really to our email address. You know how all that works. So with all that being said, 
I'm in a jolly mood today. Uh, Peter, would you like to pray for us today? Yeah. Before we go any further? That'd Sounds be great. good, man. Thanks. Uh, dear God, we're so thankful for you and all the wonderful things that you do for us. We thank you for loving us, for caring for us, for having a relationship with us. Uh, Lord, we want to focus in on your word right now. We want to focus in on your truth. Allow us to do that. Mm. Uh, help, help me, Sean and Dave, to come to these questions in a way that glorifies you so that all listening would be able to be blessed by this broadcast and brought closer to you, Lord. In your name, amen. Mm. amen. It's true. Amen. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I had um, we got some questions that are coming through uh, our email address, which we'll get to. But I was talking to my my own mother, my dear mom, who lives in the south of London in England, and she had a question um, about um, our spirits. Are our spirits created when we're created in the womb, or is our spirits already in existence? Like, are we eternal beings, and God kind of makes a body and plucks a spirit? puts it in it and I guess that kind of feeds into reincarnation and that kind of thing mm. or is our spirit created when we are created as a baby so that was her question yeah when it comes to this issue what needs to be clarified is basically how far is too far with the information we've been given a lot of people can get fanciful with inferences and take little ideas that they find appealing and then either read it into the Bible or think that the Bible's presenting something using language that they're familiar with but not what the Bible's actually communicating. Mm. So as we always emphasize, test your conclusions as much as the text itself, how you're reading it. Uh, when people are usually arguing of the idea of a pre-existence that you as your essence, your existence, your personage before you had a body, uh, the saying, of course, is an accurate one. You aren't a body, you're a soul, you have a body. And again, like most sayings, summarizing a very specific point, but taken to a much higher degree than the Bible would support if we don't understand what it was actually talking about. So let's just take this piece by piece into the Robson uh, eldership. We'll hopefully make this clear. <laughs> the Robson eldership. They're yes. going to like that. So starting, of course, with the idea of does the Bible teach that there is an example of someone existing before they physically took on flesh, that there was someone in a spiritual state that entered into the physical state? And the answer would be yes, there was one, and there is one. Mm. In Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, the famous Bethlehem prediction of where the Messiah would be born said that the one whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. So that speaking of someone from eternity that would be born in this little insignificant village that didn't even have a population worthy of being considered on the military rolls. Mm. You know, they'd be on the lower tax bracket if that's uh, more accessible to you. But the point being made is just that. We have an example in Jesus of someone who existed from eternity, was a spiritual entity, but took on flesh in a moment of history. Mm. Now the question is, is that unique to Jesus, which is always a safe bet to assume, or is this something that's universally applied to all of humanity, but was revealed through Jesus as applying to all of us? Mm. Now. Peter and I would take the former, and the reason why is because when people start to go to proof text, they end up stretching more than what's actually there. Mm. We don't like stretchy, we like solid. So when it comes to these passages, and there are several, uh, I'll go to the one that you're probably going to hear the most, uh, groups like 
the Black Keeper Israelites, groups like Spiritists and New Age uh, groups, liberal Christians, would take this point of emphasis to a degree. And again, you'll hear other passages than this for the sake of time. I'll just mention this one. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus is speaking about John the Baptist basically behind his back, but more behind his back. He's in prison at the time, but compliments him in a way that, ironically enough, he never hears. And he says something interesting about him. In verse 11 of Matthew 11, so you can remember, 11, 11, Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And now, the days of John the Baptist, notice this, until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to receive it, notice Jesus prefaces this, it's going to be a little complicated. He is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So those who would be pro-reincarnation, pro-us sharing something unique with Jesus and having a spiritual pre-existence would say, see, Elijah and John the Baptist are one and the same, that John the Baptist came on this world, but Jesus identifies him as Elijah. He's reincarnated Elijah. Now, the problem with this, first of all, is that People would usually counter it by saying, but John the Baptist clarified that he is not Elijah or the prophets. You can read this in all of his introductions, but the most prominent is in John chapter 2. And what's interesting about, or John chapter 1, excuse me, but what's interesting about uh, his introduction in John is him denying that he is the prophet, the one spoken in Deuteronomy 18. He also said, are you Elijah? Are you the Christ? And he says, no. Now, the counter on the reincarnation proposition would be then, oh, well, John the Baptist was mistaken, but Jesus knows his true identity. That's why we take Jesus' word as an authority. Why don't you? Well, all well and good, but let's make sure that we aren't saying there's conflict where there need not be any. When John the Baptist is putting forward his credentials and saying, I'm not Elijah, but he goes on to say, I am he whose voice is crying in the wilderness to make straight the way of the Lord. Everyone here knows what that's a reference to. That's a quotation verbatim of Isaiah chapter 40 and the prediction of the one who would be the forerunner of the Messiah, that when the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, would come on the scene, he would have someone to prepare the way. Now, there's other predictions, noting not just that Elijah would return, but Also noting as well the fact that one coming in the spirit and power of Elijah, that's the question. Is the spirit and power of Elijah having Elijah's spirit, or does that mean something else? And this is where we have to be careful with the language, that we don't take our terms and apply it to biblical terms. In what sense do we see, and this is just being consistent, Elijah in 1 Kings having a pre-existence, and him being mentioned as some other biblical figure. They don't have it. When Jesus mentions Elijah, who is to come, he's with a further expectation and, in a present sense, application. So the question is, where does the past tense Elijah come into play with John, and where does the future tense Elijah that Jesus is already speaking of come into play? 
We can talk about it more in a future question. We believe that the fulfillment of Malachi 4 and the return of Elijah, which even Orthodox Jews are still uh, anticipating to this day, is, of course, a reference to one of the two witnesses in the Great Tribulation, or the regular Tribulation, rather, the first half. But here's what's interesting about all this. When we're talking about proving something on so little information and so many assumptions, the question is, again, what do we know about the spirit realm? To get back to the question, and the answer is what's revealed to us. Now, has been revealed or has been assumed, inferred, taken in piecemeal language and getting more sticky business than actual solidity, this is what we need to avoid. When Jesus puts forward John the Baptist credentials and says, he is Elijah who is to come, you can't dismiss the future tense point. You also can't dismiss John the Baptist's rightful clarification of himself and saying, I'm not that Elijah. I'm not the Elijah. I'm this Elijah. I'm this one who's going to come in the Spirit. And then the question comes, when the Bible says in the Spirit, does it mean bearing their soul or does it mean bearing their ministry? And this is where you have to look for points of application. Now, again, I've gone on for this for a little while. I want to see if Peter has uh, actual information to give here than just my ramblings. But the point of emphasis that would need to be made is we need to be careful when we say, oh, this was true of Jesus. Therefore, why can't it be, instead of where is it shown to be, true of everyone else? Mm -hmm. There are things, and there is an important thing about Jesus that's exclusive to him, that God became man. Mm -hmm. I don't go then to presume, well, if God can do it, why can't I? There are lots of things that God does, is, and can do that I can't and will always be that way. If I ask the question then, so what is true about him and what is true about me? that which is explicitly explicitly, excuse me, stated. And if I have to make all these inferences and say, well, it says coming in the spirit and power of Elijah, well, that means that he was Elijah in a previous life. Big assumption. Oh, well, it was true of Jesus. Why can't it be true for everyone else? Big assumption. Where is it actually in the text, not inferred, assumed, and hoped for in your conclusion rather than brought to it? Now, again, regarding this idea of taking a preexistent soul and putting us into a body, the idea of reincarnation, is there anything you want to add or clarify, Peter, as far as maybe other passages, why we would disagree with this? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, very good question, by the way. Uh, in my opinion, and I'm not overselling it, I think it's one of the most important questions we can answer in our day-to-day. -day. So kudos to your mom. Good job, mom. <laughs> for, uh, for picking up on this. I'm actually writing, an, I'm not being facetious at all, I'm actually writing an article right now called Body Ethics, How the Incarnation and the Resurrection Shape Christian Views of Morality. So uh, what we think of the body in relation to the soul actually has a lot of implications for how we treat the body and how we treat ethics in general. Mm. And it was a very uniquely Christian idea that the body and the soul are inseparable. It is unique to any other culture and religion across the world, which is really incredible. And because of that, the specific ethics that Christians came to throughout the period of church history is relegated to this idea of the relation between the body and the soul. So what I mean is that the vast majority, and by vast majority, like I said, it, it, almost all that I've been able to find, cultures and religions believed in some form of what we would call dualism. 
dualism is the belief that the body and the soul are different things. They're separate. Mm. Hence the word dual, right? They're, they're two different things. And therefore, there was a lot of debate about when the soul entered the body. In Eastern religions, they thought about the idea of reincarnation, that your uh, soul just recycles into your body. Uh, and more Western thought, there was the idea that the soul would just go to Hades after you die, or if you're really, really good, you go to Elysium. But every single religion had this idea that heaven was a disembodied eternal existence and that the soul enters into the body at a moment in time. So Aristotle believed that at 40 days within the pregnancy, the soul of a male would enter into the body of the unborn child. And at 80 days, the soul of the female would enter into the, the body of the unborn child. Don't, uh, I, I'm not really going to get into why the time difference is there. But that was, that was his idea, that there was an entrance of the soul into the body that happened while you were living. So in other words, your body could be animated, but without a soul in his way of thinking, right? So we know what a 40-day-old uh, infant looks like. He did as well. Women had miscarriages back in the day. They would have been able to look at uh, a miscarried child at that around that time. Uh, they, they're, there's minor amounts of movement and things like that. Not that it could be felt by the mom, but there is minor amounts of movement. There's a heartbeat, things to that nature. Uh, but he still believed that the body could exist without the soul. And he presented that as his thought process. And then later on, many Christians actually glommed onto that idea. Even Thomas Aquinas, one of the great Christian thinkers, believed the same thing, that the soul of the unborn doesn't enter into the body until during or partway through the pregnancy process. Now, does the Bible support that? Really quickly, uh, Psalm 139, verse 14. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your books they were all written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. So right there you see that he's not considering himself an eternal being, because he said there was a beginning to his days, and there will be, uh, and, and they're all written out by God through his sovereignty. He also talks about the formation of his body for David is indistinguishable than the formation of a soul. Mm. So he doesn't see a time where his body was formed and then the soul was formed somewhere else and then shoved into the body. He sees that as the body's being formed, the soul's being formed at the same time. There is no difference between the formation of the body and the formation of the soul mm. for King David. Now, this is something that's reiterated throughout the scriptures. Uh, and throughout the Bible, there's this idea, there's this concept of the marriage of the spirit to the body, the marriage of the spirit to the flesh. So Adam is created in Genesis chapter 2, and then God breathes into him, and he becomes an animated being. So prior to that moment, Adam is not Adam. Adam. Mm. It's not like a zombie husk was walking around, and then God <laughs> shoved the soul into him, and then he became Adam. Zombie He's, husk. Yeah. <laughs> <Sam>. <laughs> Write that down, zombie husk. It's a theological term, just so you know. <laughs> Actually um, is. <laughs> but anyway, you know, it, he is not Adam until God breathes into him. Until the spirit joins with the body, there is no Adam. It's just a corpse. It's a cadaver. Uh, then throughout the scriptures, you see the same theme playing out over and over and over again, the marriage of the spirit to the body. You see, for instance, God showing up in a pre-incarnate form various times, like in Genesis 18, talking to Abraham. You see the importance of the bodies in the way that the Jews were commanded to treat their dead. Uh, if you touched a dead body, you'd be defiled. Uh, Joseph asked for his dead body to be brought back to Israel with them. Uh, so you have this veneration of the body taking place, 
even in the earliest stages of Israel. And then in Daniel, you have a promise that the body will be reanimated again, that there will be a resurrection. During the interim period, by the way, between death of the body and resurrection of the body, there was very little hope that there would be any consciousness remaining. If you read a lot of the Psalms, most of the Psalms, they're not making theological points, but they are stating fears that they had, that when they die, they're not going to be able to have consciousness and the ability to praise God. Mm. So even from the psalmist's perspective, they didn't really know what that interim period would be like, and there was a lot of fear and terror of entering into that interim period between the death of the body and the resurrection of the body. Mm. Then you have the ultimate marriage of spirit and body in the fact that God, who is spirit, John 14, verse 23, enters into the creation and becomes flesh, right? Enters into a body and becomes Jesus. Now, once again, it's not a husk that he in invaded, it was a body that was formed for him, right? He was incarnate at the moment of conception. Mm. We see that he has interaction with John the Baptist when both of them are in utero, right? They have a, a weird kind of interaction that happens, which is really kind of cool. But that happens while they're in the womb. Jesus is present, his, his spirit, his being, his essence is in that body. And then when he raises again in the body, that's a signification that his body is now a part of the Trinity. God has brought humanity into the Trinity, and there is an eternal quality to the body now. It's not something that, it's not a husk that is discarded. It's something that is integral to your being. You need your body. You are, in a lot of ways, your body. Once your body dies, God will allow your soul to live in a very interesting interim period, as spoken of before. But Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 that we don't long to be unclothed. We don't long to be uh, without a body. We want to be further clothed. We want a better body not to have no body. So uh, the, the importance of the body is really important. To, I mean, sorry, the importance of the body is very relevant and valid for the early Christians. Well, what morality comes from this mindset? Well, if you have an idea that the soul just kind of goes into the body and even a reincarnation idea, what's wrong, what's really wrong with killing somebody, especially, say, the unborn? What would be wrong with killing a body that hasn't been animated yet and doesn't have any autonomy yet and doesn't have any experiences yet. What would really be so wrong about that? Mm. And the answer is there's nothing wrong with it. Even after the kids are born, you see almost every society had some form of infant sacrifice because the only value that they were ascribed, to, that they could ascribe to human life is the value that you could earn through your actions and your behaviors. So once you became valuable to the society, then your life has value and meaning. But up until that point, your life has zero value. It could be discarded at a whim. Parents could execute their children. They could leave them out to be killed. And none of that was seen as being immoral whatsoever. Because again, the body doesn't matter. Also, hedonism crops out from this mindset. Because if the body doesn't matter, then what does it matter what I do with my body in any type of licentious way? Right? If I want to have sex, if I want to overeat, if I want to uh, utilize my body in all sorts of hedonistic lifestyles, what damage am I really doing? Because the soul is what matters and the body can't affect the soul. So as long as I have faith, as long as I believe the right things and think the right things, who cares what I do with my body, right? That was the idea of many, many Greeks prior. Mm. This is also where asceticism comes from. If the body is terrible, then why should I give any credence to it? I should deny the body. I should uh, reject it if I want to become more spiritual because that's where heaven is then wouldn't it be best if I neglected all of my body's desires and became more and more detached from physicality and became more and more united to enlightenment 
and to reason and to faith and to spiritism, right? That is the idea that happens in a lot of Eastern mysticism and even in a lot of Christian circles. Mm. The idea that the body doesn't really matter. That's why uh, this is one of my critiques of the modern church as well, especially uh, progressive Christianity. There's very little talk about body ethics, about virtue that is accomplished through the body. All that's really spoken of in many churches is just the theological truths and religious sacraments to God, right? Tithing, evangelizing, things like that. But there's very little evidence. There's very little exhortation to what you do in your body on your day-to-day life, Mm -hmm. right? What you do at your job, what you do with your wife, what you do with your kids, right? There's very little emphasis on that because, again, who cares about the body? It's just about the soul that's going to go be be with God, right? Why invest in any of these things if they're all just going to burn? You might as well just invest all of your time and attention into the spiritual things, and then you'll go be with God later. Uh, This is, uh, you know, one more allocation for this, and then we can move on, but there's literally numerous. So we've touched the abortion issue, but how about this new concept, gender ideology? This comes from dualism. The idea that your body and your consciousness, your mind, your soul could Mm. be mismatched, that Mm. I could be a man in a woman's body or a woman in a man's body. Mm. This is the idea that my body is not integral to my being. My body is something that I make out of my being. Mm. So I exist as a full-fledged spirit but what if God got it wrong? You know, you're going down the assembly line. It's very tough to, you know, fit the spirit into the right body. Oh, wow. So I can it's a lot accident. of people. <laughs> it's a lot of people. Yeah. I can mismatch the soul. And that's what some people think. They believe that they have been mismatched, that God has legitimately put them in the wrong body, and therefore they have the right and the imperative to change their body to match their self-given identity. Uh, or even to believe, as some people do, that the body doesn't matter at all, right? So there's, again, there's the hedonistic mindset of I conform my body to what my wants. And then there's the ascetic mindset. I deny the body because of my wants. So for the more ascetically minded person, they would say, well, my body doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that I have a beard and I have, you know, short hair and that I have the genitalia of a male. I'm a woman. Mm. And if you don't say that, then you're a bigot, right? That, that idea comes from this dualistic mentality. So why is it that all these things are cropping up now? It's because dualism has not been a part of Western European culture for many, many years, for hundreds of years, because we didn't have a dualistic mindset. We believed that the body mattered. But now with that ideology going out of vogue, you're seeing all these excesses from the pagan world coming back into our world. So uh, it's very important that Christians understand this. It, it may sound like kind of one of these interesting questions that's like very theoretical and doesn't have a lot of implications for the way you live your life. It's actually, like I said, I don't think of overselling it. It is one of the most important questions that you need to answer. What is the role between your soul and your body? Yeah. And what is the difference between us and God? Right. And so the one of the many unique things of God is that He um, He's uncreated, right? We are created. The God was uncreated. He always was and always will be. And so you're saying something had to be. Yeah. Something (laughs) something had to be. That's right. Um, But we were. I mean, we are eternal beings. From when we're created, we're right. We're, right? And going forward, but not back. Going or backwards. That's what needs to be clarified. Right. We had a beginning. Yeah, right. Very good. Well, great question, Mother. Thank you for that. <laughs> Being part of the show. A quick question, Mac D had, he's got two questions, but his first one, I'll separate them because I can because I'm the host. Because um, <laughs> uh, it's related, I think. He asked, who is the Ancient of Days? It's Jesus, right? So, no. But that would, uh, Jesus is not the Ancient of Days? No. Oh, so who's not, the Ancient of Days? the passage being quoted. No, in Daniel 7, there was a vision that was shown to Daniel where the Ancient of Days was sitting on a throne and thousands upon thousands ministered to him. Then one like the Son of Man approached the Ancient of Days and throne and dominion was given to him. 
the one coming on the clouds, the Son of Man. These are titles that Jesus regularly applied to himself. And of course, that is a distinction from the one sitting on the throne identified as the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of the Days and the Son of Man are both God because they're both given divine, excuse me, divine prerogatives, riding on the clouds, being worshipped as the way only God could be sitting on the throne above all nations. But there is a distinction made between the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man. The Son, God the Son, applied the Son of Man to himself. And when he was cross-examined in the Gospel of Mark, he literally quoted Daniel and said, I'm the one riding on the clouds in that passage. The Ancient of Days on the throne, that would then be the Father. Father. Oh, okay, cool. Uh, I mean, the way I saw it was related anyway was that God, I mean, I'm taking Ancient of Days means before, you know, before. Yeah, he's eternal too, <laughs> he's but eternal. that title is applied yeah, to the so Father. That's why I meant when I said in the specific passage, because I, yeah. I, I wouldn't see it as wrong if someone said, well, Jesus is the Ancient of Days. Right. Well, yeah, yeah, but I mean, uh, there's a specific usage of that in Daniel 7, so yeah, yeah. for... for for quality assurances sake. <laughs> <laughs> is Jesus eternal? Say. Yes. In Daniel 7 specifically, right, right. the one sitting on the throne, well, the Son of Man sits on the throne too, but yeah. that's the point. Right, great. Well, thanks, Mac. I hope that, hope that helped you out. I thought I'd throw that question in there. A uh, question from Talon. Is Genesis allegorical, literal, or both? And I'd add the question, how do we tell when we read the Bible? Is there an easy way to tell what's, what's allegorical, what's literal, what is... Mm. Um, uh, you know, real accounts or what are parables and that kind of thing? Is yeah. there a general? That's, well, a great question. that's 50 chapters. It's a lot of uh, ground to cover. Do <laughs> <laughs> so, so your best. Well, I believe in you. The problem, again, that surfaces with this is when people say, well, Genesis is being allegorical. You have to ask, why do you take the text that way? If it's assumptions made, kind of like the reincarnation question, before reading the text and saying, well, this can't mean what it says because it interferes with things that either, either I've already decided are true or people that I respect have told me are true and that would disagree with this and I hold them as a higher authority than the Bible but I don't say that out loud because now it sounds silly and I don't want to be silly but I also don't want to be wrong in their eyes and this whole rabbit trail goes so when people play the allegory card first of all cringeometer is already starting to set off because especially in this day and age where we quote unquote reference what's called science and say that's an authority over the Bible because science is the real definition of truth. That's always literal. I usually just give the response and noting, okay, when you were in school, how old was the earth? It was certain, sure fact. It was hundreds of millions of years old. When I was in school, it was billions of years old. And now that uh, Dave Robson, you've welcomed in the next generation, they're being told it's trillions of years old. Yep. So either we're a lot older than we give ourselves credit for, or science isn't as settled as it's advertised. People will level up this idol of absolute knowledge and say what we've achieved today is the certain and then they would put that in authority over the bible but the reason why we trust the accounts of the bible is essentially on the basis of two individuals and their credentials being put forward and this will tie back to your question talen about genesis being literal allegorical i'm not doing the rabbit trail here first is moses Moses, the historical figure who essentially codified, meaning put into writing, put into a book, the standard by which we would judge not only who God is as he's revealed himself in history in this context, but also who would set up the credentials for when God would reveal himself in person. 
Then we go to that revelation of God in person, Jesus of Nazareth himself. Jesus of Nazareth is more established as far as his existence, his claims, and the credentials of his claim to be God than anyone else in history. There is more evidence of Jesus' existence than the fact that I had oatmeal for breakfast this morning, with nothing in it, by the way. So, very plain. But the point of emphasis is being made in this. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm, I'm a terrible person. But the point of emphasis is centered around all of that. If Jesus referenced Moses, who gave us these historical accounts in Genesis, and advertise them as historical accounts in Genesis, and they conflict with what's popular in our day and age, you have to cycle back to your reasons for trusting them. Moses put his credentials in publicly verified miracles. Jesus put his credentials down in publicly verified miracles. Scientists put their credentials down in being told what to think for a certain amount of decades. And, of course, the threat of getting you fired if you don't tow the party line or being denied grant money if you don't support the popular opinions of the day. On and on this conversation and intellectual tug-of-war can go, but when it comes to trust, it always has to be based on reason, the definition of faith. The reasons we have to trust God's revelation of history, even at the expense of human speculation and modern claims, is because they put their money where their mouth was in showing they were supernatural, that they were beyond nature, whereas we can only observe it and have a limit to how far that scope and vision can reach. Now, I don't always attribute malice to those who were making these scientific claims, maybe the limits, the instruments they could study, or the assumptions they had to work into models that couldn't answer all the questions, led them to these sort of conclusions that fell short of reality. But the fact of the matter is there are scientists across every spectrum, those who would take Genesis at face value and say, I have reason to trust this, I use this with modern scientific techniques, and it matches up to the data others who do that don't, and others that don't that do, and every other combination you want to make a summation of. But the point being made is just this, Talon. When we look at Genesis and say it's allegorical, the question is why? Why is this passage not literal and this passage is? Why is this passage allegorical and this passage isn't? If you go to the nuances of the language, that's usually something that's been handed to you, and you need to know why to trust them. But if, and this is always our rule in Bible interpretation, if the literal sense makes sense, seek no other sense, lest you believe in nonsense. When the Bible lays out, and Pastor Scott can come by tomorrow and go through the Hebrew language with us, knowing there's no room for this kind of interpretation unless you read it into the statements after the fact, the ones that are advertised the most as allegory aren't anywhere else in Genesis but the first 10 chapters. And why? Because it conflicts with a lot of popularly accepted scientific claims. Now, if we take at face value the claim that the earth was created in six literal days, evening the morning the first, evening the morning the second, evening the morning the third, always set in that sort of format, they'd say, oh, you see, that's a poetic structure. Why can't poetry record real events? Why can't you express something eloquently but in a literal way? And the whole point being made is this. You have to watch your assumptions. You have to be sensitive to the things that you assume are already the case. Again, like the reincarnation question, what does spirit mean? What does life mean? What does the soul mean? You have to make sure that you're aware of those assumptions and not letting it color what's being laid out in front of you. 
if we can approach this with the working assumption that Moses is worth the, uh, I guess, uh, manna he put on the table, and Jesus is worth the bread he put out to the 5,000, to make common food assertions since I talked about oatmeal, we're talking about someone who can be trusted insofar as what they're reporting is at least more true than those who don't have those credentials. Mm. I think that's fair. But if on the other hand, we're going to say, well, obviously there are certain situations where God's expressing something, you know, the proto-Evangelion, for example, the um, one who would be born from woman's seed will crush the serpent's head and you will bruise his heel. The reference to Satan as a serpent, he's not going to literally be transformed into a snake. On and on it goes. You need to take it on a, not just chapter by chapter, not just a verse by verse, but a concept by concept basis and ask, what are the assumptions being read into this? What other passages treat this as history, which Jesus did? And of course, what passages are being applied literally in the context of allegory? I would say the short answer to bring this all back home is yes, both, but it's not on a universal basis. It's not like Genesis is in the allegory, history, literal hybrid section. It is the historical section of the Torah. Mm. But if, on the other hand, we ask the question, where does allegory apply? That's what the rest of the Bible's there to essentially walk you through. Because they put Genesis at the beginning for a reason, and they put Revelation at the end also for a reason. Genesis sets up the 65 books that are to follow and Revelation references and fulfills the 65 books that came before, not in the purpose of allegory for its own sake, but where it's literal and where it's allegorical to emphasize a literal reality. And even people who would disagree with the literal six-day creation would at least agree with that. Yeah, no, I I obviously agree with everything you're saying. Very good question, uh, by the way. Uh, when we're talking about the, the Bible being literal or allegorical, I like how you asked, is it literal, allegorical, or both? And the simple answer to that question is, it is both. You are mm. correct. So uh, this is 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11. Uh, Paul is talking about the Israelites in this passage, and he says, Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the age have come. So Paul literally says that the events happening to ancient Israel are allegories. They're admonitions for us, right? Mm -hmm. We're supposed to read into them meaning. So uh, a lot of people who listened to what Sean just said and said, well, that sounds like a lot of work, Sean. You know, like, why can't God just give us something really simple and why can't we just read it? Isn't he the God of order and not confusion? It shows you just how ignorant our culture has become. So I've recently in the last couple of years started to read a lot of older books, uh, not just prose, right, meaning uh, literal books like uh, writings of Aristotle and Plato and people like that, but I've actually started reading fictional books that are much older. And what you realize very quickly when you start reading fictional books that are, you know, 500, 600, 700 years old is that you have to take a huge step back. You have to let go of a lot of your assumptions about how life works and how I'm looking at things. And you have to actually learn a little bit about the time period when this person was writing in order to understand why they're saying what they're saying. So like right now, I'm reading a really fascinating book called The Idiot by Dostoevsky. And it's a really fascinating book. I, I love it. But it's like you read it and you 
realized very quickly, like when I started reading it, I was like, I need to do research before I can get into this book because mm. I have no idea. It's talking about Russian oligarchies and it's talking about wealth management within that society. And it's talking about how inheritance works. Uh, the main character is a prince, which for me means that he's royalty, but for them it didn't. Right. So I'm having to like throw aside a lot of my assumptions about what these things look like in order to understand the book. This is what you have to do when you read something from a different culture in a different time period. The Bible was written a long time ago in a very different culture than yours and mine. So yeah, you do have to do a little bit of work in order to understand it, which is why they pay us the big bucks, right? <laughs> they, they pay people like me and John and Scott and Dave to do the research necessary to understand the historical context, the language that's being written, and why we are to read, read it the way that we are. So while at a certain point, I would say that everyone does have uh, imposition from God to do research on their own, I also understand not everybody has the amount of time that I have on my hands to do this, mm. right? I'm literally paid to do it. And so that's why I try my best to be as faithful with what God has given me as I possibly can be, because I understand some of the things that I'm talking about, right, when I quote what ancient Greek words mean or what the, the society was like when these things were being written— I understand that a lot of people are just going to take my word for it. Yeah. Now, I encourage them to do research on their own, but I also understand, like I said, they're probably not going to do that. They're going to take my word for it. And so I need to be very careful about the way that I speak. Mm. Otherwise, I'm going to lead people astray. So my encouragement to people, if you're getting into the Bible, you're like, this is, this is a little over my head. I don't know how to do it. Get a good commentary. Find a good Bible teaching church that you trust to give you this information. And that'll give you at least a good starting point. And then you can kind of go back and, and do research. The other thing that's important is it's kind of like when you're watching a movie, right? The first time you watch a movie, what you want to do is you just want to focus on the events. What happened? When you rewatch a movie, you start seeing themes and motifs and character development and things like that. And you could really start diving into a movie. So if someone's reading the Bible for the first time, uh, this passage from Paul where he's saying like, this is a, this is done for admonition for all people and all time. Just If you're going to read the book of Exodus for the first time, just read the book of Exodus and understand this is what happened, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and that will help you understand God's in, uh, investment in his people and his intervention in hu human history and things like that. It, it's a really good read just from that perspective. And by the way, you know, the Bible is just a very beautifully written book. Um, there have been many people who don't believe it who still enjoy reading it. Mm -hmm. uh, Anthony Flew, who mm -hmm. was an atheist, later turned deist, uh, really bright guy, literary critic, like just incredibly intelligent guy. He actually said that reading the Bible was a pleasure. Uh, he said that reading the Quran was a penance, so make it that what you will. But, you know, he, he actually said that reading the Bible was a pleasure for him. It really was. It's, it's a, uh, a lot of the books are fast moving. The, the characters are not like hollowed out individuals. They're real people. Mm. You get to know about their motivations, their background, why they're doing what they're doing. You get to understand an ancient culture. It's just a really, really well-written book. Uh, and I, I encourage anyone to read it. I mean, the poetry in the Bible is just astounding, right? Mm. The book of Psalms is incredible. Please don't read it in the NASB translation. <laughs> it's a little, it's like, it's like chewing through cardboard. You know, get a good translation of, of, these, uh, of these texts, especially the poetic texts, mm. and dive into it. Because it's just, again, incredibly beautiful. It's incredibly gorgeous. If I didn't believe the Bible was true, I would still read the Bible. It's just, it's just an incredible book. But I obviously believe it's true, so it adds another level of beauty towards me. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings, he famously said that the Bible is the most beautiful myth ever told because it's true. 
Mm. Right. So on one token, he's saying, you know, a guy who's pretty big into mythology and things like that. He's saying, yeah, I, I love reading myths and everything like that. It's great. And the Bible is like incredibly beautiful myth, but it has the added bonus of being true. Right? Mm. It's not it's not a false myth like the other ones, which is really incredible. But yeah, when I'm reading the story of Adam and Eve, I'm reading the story of man. Right. That's uh, that's what his name literally means is man. I'm mm. reading about man's rebellion and the heart that is in me. Did it really happen? Yes. There was a literal guy named Adam who rebelled against God in this very particular way. But I'm also reading about my story. I'm reading about my own rebellion against mm. God and my own mm. desire to create good and evil in my own image. Mm. Um, I'm reading about my own marriage and how I struggle with my wife and how I have a tendency to throw other people under the bus for wronging me and things like that. Mm. Uh, when I'm reading the story of Cain and Abel, I'm reading about my family. I'm reading about sibling rivalry and how it starts. You know, when I read about Abraham and his calling, I'm looking at my story of being called out of an old life before God entered into mine. You know, everything in the Bible is your story, right? You could read it and you could see yourself in it, which all good writing does. And the Bible does better than any other book because, again, it's true. And then, uh, you know, when Paul talks about the Israelites. Israel becomes the stand-in for all of human civilization. Right, God's dealings with them, his giving of the law, their understanding of government, right? Everything is done in a very particular way from which we could derive much allegorical, symbolic meaning from it. And that's why the Bible could be studied so often. I mean, you go to our church, you'll see that. You know, we spend years in one book, right? If if it was just like a history class, Scott would be like, Hey, this is what happened, you know, this is what Luke records. Let's move on. Right. But the reason why we're spending so much time on it is because we realize it's not just a history book. Right. Right. Everything that's being told is being told for a really, really specific reason. And there are so many layers and exhortations and applications that can be made to whatever circumstance you're going through. So mm. I said, excellent question. Yeah, great question. Well, thanks, Taylor. <laughs> was a good question indeed. Um, Taylor's been coming to Calvary Christian Fellowship. For, met him a couple of times. Me and Pastor Scott prayed with him. He's not a, a zombie husk. Yes, he's a real. <laughs> he's a real guy. He's a real guy. Spirit and, and flesh. He is and not a cannibalistic deity from ancient <laughs> no. voodoo rituals. So it's kind of cool to to know his face, and we got to pray with him and everything. So anyway, thanks, Taylor, for that. A question from Rhonda: What happens to infants when they die? Um, even maybe aborted pregnancies, um, babies, infants. What happens when uh, they die? I assume she's asking about the age of accountability and not just yeah. the fact that physical death means physical yeah. death. Yeah, well, I assume and, that and too. And also, like what we were talking about at the beginning about the soul and the body. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it would be just as much death as if it was you or I. When it comes to the question of where do they go, though, um, the concern that a lot of people have is because they had this consciousness and didn't have any opportunity to do with it. Would not the judge of all the earth, Genesis 18 style, do what is right by them. Would he embody his wrath and they would be separated from him forever in a fallen sinful state, despite the fact not living it out in any tangible way, but still being spiritually separated from God? Those on one side of the camp would have to say that, though they don't want to. They see the injustice of it. On the other hand, you see God covering them with his grace and knowing that because they didn't have an opportunity to choose that there would be that provision for them in what's called the age of accountability and it would vary from person to person. Some say it's around the age that the Jews would be dedicated in as uh, sons or daughters of the covenant and the bar mitzvah or the bat mitzvah around 11. But the point being made is that different people develop or process life differently and at different paces. So obviously you can't just set it down to one number. The key 
distinction, I think, between both groups. And the problem, by the way, with the provision of grace is that, well, why doesn't God just do that for everybody? We don't have to sort this whole mess out that God just gets all to heaven. You get into universalism. Neither work. So you have to go with what we do know, not what we think we want to know. Um, The best passage that I think reconciles this and solidifies it for me, and again, I don't have a lot of emotional clout in this game, but I have dealt with people who have, and Peter, you can throw in your uh, 100 bucks worth to my 10 cents. But in the book of 2 Samuel, there was an incident where after David's adultery with Bathsheba, the child physically died. And that, of course, when it was still being described in every Hebrew sense of the word as an infant. It was physically born, yes, but it was in that pre-accountability state. It wasn't conscious or accountable in any Jewish sense of the term. So it would fit in this before conscious moral accountability state would fit. And David rightly reflecting on the fact that he was under the judgment of God, that Nathan has said, because you have done this, this child is going to die, that would be a punishment on him. Now, the skeptic, the atheist, the agnostic that doesn't even believe in moral accountability or ultimate judgment or the nature of God will try to use this and say, God would punish a child, an innocent child, for the sins of his father. Yet, you actually read the passage and what happens. David is in a state of mourning and in prayer, constantly throwing himself at the mercy of God, asking that this wouldn't take place. And when his servants find out that the child has died, they don't want to tell him, but David can tell. So he says, is the child dead? And they go, yes. He takes off his uncomfortable clothing. He washes himself off from the ash that was to put him in that constant state of discomfort, meant to reflect mourning, and he was willing to eat something. He had been fasting up until this point. And they were confused by this and said, what's the deal? David said, I will go to him. He will not return to me. I will go to him. He will not return to me. So he understood in perspective of this child that wherever he was, he was going. And unless we assume that David anticipated eternal separation from God, which the book of Ezekiel would wholeheartedly disagree, we understand, and David rightly understood, we can verify in 1 Kings, he was identified as a prophet of God, the sweet psalmist of Israel, to know the child was with God, that the provision was made for him, that despite being the, not object, but subject of God's wrath on David, he would still see that child again. He would go to the presence of God where that child was when all was said and done, but the child is going to stay there. And the reason why he stopped mourning was an acceptance of the fact he was being disciplined for a penalty that should have cost his own life and yet was shown mercy. So the point being made is just this. We aren't told every single situation or semantic if there was a passage on the spiritual nature and terms and conditions and passage of spiritual judgment for those that died from sudden infant death syndrome or because of negligence maybe ended up drowning in a pool or anything like torn apart by a wild animal who knows All these things, yeah, absolutely, I'd love to get as morbid as possible, we're all put in this situation and place where we have to fall back on the character of God and say, as Genesis 18, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Mm. 
So if there's a child that's put in a position where they weren't put in any position apart from physical death, then we simply see the effects of a fallen sinful world. But if on the other hand we ask, so what's the judge of all the earth to do? We can and should only ever fall back on his character and say, he'll do right by them just like he's going to do right by me. Mm. On the basis of Jesus on the cross, we're both justified. He'll not only cover me for my wrongdoings, but the total consequences of everything wrong with this world of that is simply one example, Mm. a big one, but one nonetheless. Mm. God can and isn't hindered by the things that go wrong with us. Mm. That would be the best, I think, handling of it. More information, not less. We're not given a lot, so I just stick with that. Yeah. Anything to add to that, Peter? No, no. that's good. No. Yeah, great question. Uh, from, that was from uh, Rhonda. Yeah, thank you, Rhonda, for your question, being part of the show today. Uh, I have a question from Craig. Hi, all. Hello. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well. Um, all the formalities. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering what form Satan took when he was in the story of Job. In Genesis, he was told he would crawl on his belly and eat dust all the days, and he was wondering how all that works. That's a question from Craig. What does an invisible entity look like? Yeah, yeah, so Sean's, Sean's correct. So angelic beings are spirit, so that means that they don't have a form. So when we think about form, what we're talking about is how we relate to the physical universe that we find ourselves within. But there are, even interacting with the physical universe, there are concepts, there are things that exist outside of the physical reality that we deal with all the time, and we understand that they don't have a form. So for instance, uh, like the number two, what does the number two look like? Now you can have a representation of the number two, right, which would be what we write down on a piece of paper to represent two, but that's not the number two. Uh, I can make a metaphor of the number two, I could take two things and put them together, but that's again, that's not the number two. There is no physical form for the number two. It's a concept that exists and it's real, but I just can't, I, I can't represent it in a real way. I have to use some sort of a symbol or metaphor to represent it. And that's what we see happening for us in the Bible. So Satan is represented as serpent, as a dragon, as the morning star, as various other things mm. to represent his being as something that we would kind of understand but he doesn't actually have a form. Uh, he is a spiritual entity. That's mm-hmm. why Sean alluded to this earlier when he talked about the fall of Satan, uh, when it, God curses the snake to crawl on its belly. That's obviously not a curse for Satan because Satan doesn't crawl on his belly. He doesn't have a belly. He's not a physical entity. So when God is cursing the serpent to crawl on his belly, what that is is it's a metaphor for us that when we see serpents, when we see snakes, we're understanding, we're, we're actually visually seeing what has happened to Satan, that mm-hmm. he has been brought low and that he has become a creature that has to function off of cunning and uh, basically poisonous attributes in order to get what he, what he wants. And mm-hmm. he's a, a, a predator towards us, uh, not in the sense that snakes eat us, but in the sense that snakes are deadly to us, even though they're much smaller than we are. So uh, there's, a, there's metaphors that represent Satan, but in his being, he is an immaterial being. He doesn't have uh, an actual physical uh, visage, belly. right? He doesn't have a belly. Now, again, we do see that angels can sometimes represent themselves on this plane of existence. We yeah. see this at the uh, resurrection of Jesus, for instance, and, and things like that. But that doesn't seem to be the norm, and that isn't their actual body. That's something that they've taken on to represent themselves. So uh, easy way to understand this, for me anyway, is uh, 
if you play a video game, you can actually interact with a digital universe. You're not digital, you're physical, but you can interact with a digital universe. But in order to do that, you need an avatar. You need some sort of a representation of yourself that can interact with that world that you're controlling. But that's not you, it's a representation of you. That's how angels function. They, they can represent themselves on this plane, but that's not who they really are. That also seems to be something that God restricts angels from doing. Uh, the reason why I say that is because you don't really run into angels too often. <laughs> the writer of Hebrews seems to suggest that we might run into them more than we think, mm. but it doesn't seem to be the norm, right? It does seem to be a very supernatural and uh, something to be, to be taken as an out-of-the-norm event when you run into an angelic being. And demons don't seem to do it almost ever, right? So I, other than Genesis, I'm actually not aware of a demon representing themselves on this plane to people uh, other than possessing someone, are you? No, if people would right. reference uh, Jesus being tempted in the wilderness, we aren't told of any physical form, exactly, just yeah. the mm. voice, the tempt- the temptation. <laughs> Absolutely. So, so in Job, you would be, that's a completely spiritual realm that is mm. in God's throne room. So you Satan wouldn't, have a physical form in that sense. He would be just representing himself as he is, which is spirit. Yeah, yeah. great. Anything to add no. to that? No. Well, we're. I'm going to call it and say we're out of time. Before I throw another question in, you guys yeah. have to talk <laughs> to people. I think Thanks. we covered a lot. I, we did. We did. A couple of questions we have. I'll, we'll get to them tomorrow from Taylor and uh, from Mac D. Your second question, which I promised I'd get to, and I didn't. I apologize. If you want to keep in touch with us uh, while we're off air, again, questionsforhope at gmail.com. That's our email address, questionsforhope at gmail.com. Follow Pastor Scott on Twitter as well, Scott R4H. That's Scott R4H. We will be back tomorrow, same time, same place. Uh, Pastor Scott should be here. It's Wednesday tomorrow, right? Yeah. My days of the week. And you'll be here with us tomorrow, Sean? Yeah. Right. And I will be here, Lord willing, and we'll see you then. Thanks again for being part of A Reason for Hope. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.